0: Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours. Real-world conversations with U.K. professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of U.K. to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon.
1: Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves
0: on 88.1 FM, radio-free License. And welcome to Office Hours. My name is Brian Connors-Mankie. I'm here with uh, our very special guest, Jennifer Kramer. And she's so special because she's by herself this week. <laughs> Usually, Office Hours has David Cole as our host, but he is a, a student himself, and he is actually interviewing or has a meeting for a summer uh, Fulbright, I believe. So best of luck to him. Yes. And uh, usually we try to have two faculty members on as well, so we can kind of get that back and forth between the two. End of the school year, or end of the semester, um, becomes more of a challenge. So luckily, Professor Kramer's here with us, and we are happy to have her. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Brian.
0: Um, So... Start off by just telling us, introduce yourself, um, what department you're in and what you teach and what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Jennifer Kramer. I'm in the English department and I'm a member of the Interdisciplinary Program in Linguistics uh, here at UK. I am a sociolinguist by training. That means I study language and its social interaction, um, how people use language in their real day-to-day lives. My particular research focuses on dialects of American English, and I have an even more specific focus on Kentucky dialects. I um, work on how people produce and perceive the regional identities that people have based on how they talk. Uh, And so that's what I do. Uh, It's a very popular area, at least with my students here, it seems, and uh, I'm happy to be here to talk about my work.
0: And so how... um did that initial interest in your life happen with language and um, dialects and are, and where are you from originally?
1: I'm actually a Kentuckian born and raised. Right. I uh, grew up in Louisville, that other city, but I am also a wildcat uh, born and raised as well. I've been a, a big UK fan since as long as I can remember and uh, I actually did my undergrad degrees here. I did a Bachelor of Arts in French and one in linguistics as well. Um, I actually started out as an undergraduate major in math. And uh, I loved math, and I did okay in math, but I came home every day very excited about French classes. And I always wanted to find something that would combine that love of math with that love of language. And that's really what I found in linguistics. So having done that and fallen in love with linguistics, I went on into graduate work. But uh, being a Kentuckian, I always was curious about what was going on here with language.
0: And um, how much has the linguistics um, program changed since you were a um, student taking linguistics classes?
1: Uh, it's gotten much bigger. Uh, in fact, uh, we were we were pretty lucky when I was here... Uh, to have a bachelor's degree in linguistics already, but now uh, our program offers not only the bachelor's degree, but also a master's degree in linguistics. Um, There are many more faculty members. Um, Basically, when I was here, the program was uh, held together by about three or four faculty uh, running things most of the time with a couple of extra. Um, And then now I think we're up to Uh, Nine or ten people who are regularly involved
0: in the program. And what kind of um, scope are we talking about for the listeners in terms of what can be, uh, what kind of um, stuff is covered in all of that range of linguistics?
1: Sure. Uh, Our program has people who are interested in many different uh, aspects of. Uh, linguistics. Of course, linguistics just in general is the study of language, but uh, more precisely, we study the various aspects of language, uh, not just how to speak a language, which many people work on, but we also work on the, the nuances of individual languages. So uh, people in our program study a wide range of languages. I happen to study English, but uh, we have people who study um, Slavic languages and people who study... Um, uh, some languages in uh, Iran and other places like that. So we have a, a, a wide variety of languages represented, but also the kinds of things we do with languages is, is varied as well. So I said I was a sociolinguist. I studied the social aspects of language. Some of my colleagues study the more theoretical aspects of language, so syntax and morphology, the, the grammar, uh, as most people would call it, of the language, or uh, morphology is sort of the study of the words, uh, how the words go together and the little pieces of language. Um, we have people who work in historical linguistics, so how language has changed over time. Um, and so it's, it's a, actually a wide variety of options in the program, uh, different ways of studying language.
0: Excellent. Um, so let's get back into you specifically and the dialects of Kentucky. When did you decide that that was something that you wanted to tackle
1: it's great Uh, it's a good question because when I left from here I went to Purdue University to do my master's degree and when I got there uh, I wanted to study sounds in some manner and I just hadn't decided what when I got there I met uh, one professor a a syntactician who uh, worked on Catalan and and Basque languages and in her class we had to write a, a paper and I wanted to write about I, I, something British, I think, is what I told her. I wanted to write about something in British English. And she looked at me and said, well, why? Don't you talk funny? And I was put off and, what, what do you mean? You know, things like this. And she said, I think people in, in your part of the world say things like, might, could. Interesting. And I thought about it for a while and... I can certainly say things like Mike could, and many of my family members do, and heard it all my life, and hadn't even really realized it wasn't what everybody said until I did a little digging, and that was my first foray into Southern English features. I ended up doing sociolinguistics there, though I I focused in um, something called World Englishes, uh, the idea that English isn't just British and American, it's actually spoken everywhere, and I was looking at how people in France use English. I really enjoyed that work and decided I wanted to go on for a Ph.D., and I wanted to do it where some of the great scholars of world Englishes were, and that was at the University of Illinois. When I got there, I decided, well, maybe I don't want to do world Englishes anymore. Maybe I want to do very specifically Kentucky Englishes. And I had an advisor there who said, basically, in doing your research, you have to do what you love. And I was so fascinated by what was going on in Kentucky in terms of uh, its northernness or southernness, whichever way you want to talk about it. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Um, but uh, I decided that was the way I needed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I had my first taste of Southerness, and then uh, I wanted to see exactly how Southern we really are here.
0: And so your professor at Purdue, mm-hmm. that person, I mean, Purdue's not <laughs> that far. <laughs> That's from, right. <laughs> so, um, but that professor was from some, well, she's from Spain, yeah. Right, she, so, I was,
1: so she knew she had some uh, uh, notion about what was happening in the south based on her own research, I'm right, sure. right. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was the ticket that got me into doing what I do.
0: So <clears throat> take me into the dissertation to some degree then. What were I mean when you first set out to do it, like any dissertation it's pretty massive. <laughs> That's a word. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and so uh what Challenges did you find early on and um, and also what kind of small victories did you find kind of early on as well
1: sure well, so the, the focus in my in my research at the dissertation stage was on how people both produce and perceive regional identities because Louisville's at this very fascinating place, and I was focusing specifically on Louisville at the time, though i 've expanded to talk about Kentucky as being at this real crossroads location. I mean we could talk about that. Um, you know, sociohistorically, just think of things like the Civil War. People sure. like to bring up as an example for Kentucky, um, the president of the Confederacy and of the Union War, Kentuckians. Um, so so we have this sort of split, are we northern, are we southern? And it's really not so much northern anymore. Um, people focus more on is it midwestern or is it southern? And, and if you look, in Louisville in particular, and this was my experience, is I, I always thought I was southern. I, I grew up with a family that... Was from other places in Kentucky, and for me, it, I felt like that meant I was Southern. Um, Derby Day is one of our favorite holidays, and mm-hmm. it's really like a quintessential Southern kind of thing. Um, but you look around and you see things like Southern Moving Company or Midwest Moving Company. You'll get kind of a little bit of both. Um, and a quick Google search of "Is Kentucky or is Louisville uh, Midwestern or is Louisville Southern" will give you all sorts of blogs and. Comment threads that show people really are divided on that.
0: Sure, and it it can, well, even can come down to like what part of the city you're living in. Right.
1: And so I wanted to see how that played out linguistically. Um, And I said perception and production because uh, I work in an area called perceptual dialectology. And basically, the idea is you ask non linguists, hey, where do people have a certain way of speaking? And you give them a map and you ask them to draw, you know, little circles around areas and say, you know, name that dialect area. And I did this with a bunch of people to see whether they would draw a southern area and put Louisville in it or not, was, was basically my my focus with this task. And there's a long, long tendency, both linguistically and otherwise, to call the Ohio River this northern boundary of the south. And I wanted to see if this was represented in maps, and sure enough, many people did sort of draw a little squiggly line down the river and say, here's where the south begins. Others had different views uh, on the city and it was very interesting uh, to see how those those played out. Um, some people didn't talk about Louisville at all, they left it uncategorized. Uh, some people uh, very clearly marked it as Midwestern, um, and so it seems to be stuck at this place in between places in terms of how they perceive what's spoken there. But then I wanted to see, okay fine, that's maybe what you think, but what are you actually doing with language? Um, linguistic maps mark the beginning of the south there. Uh, and there are linguistic features associated with that, and we can talk about that in in a minute if you want. But the um, the thing basically boiled down to, are you using these Southern dialect features or not? Um, and what I found was kind of hit or miss. Some people did, some people didn't. And actually, mostly the variation happened within individuals where they were able to alternate between these forms, suggesting that they have access to two different systems. <laughs> um, and And because of that, that... Place between places thing gets evoked again. That Louisvilleians really are southern and not southern. Uh, and you mentioned uh, difficulties and uh, and uh, triumphs. I would say the biggest difficulty, and I think this is for many people who do linguistic research, is um, getting out there and in your one of your earliest times of actually talking to people about their language, um, getting people to do the maps. You know, I really had to rely on a kind of a friend of a friend method, where I said, "Hey, you know, let me." can I see your friends and give them maps and things? Um, but one of the, the victories, I would say, is that in, in, in an interview I had done with a, a couple, they mentioned some show, they said off the top of their heads, they said, well, there's some show they're doing here in Louisville called Southern Bells or something. And, and I don't know, it just doesn't feel like Southern Bells country to me. And I'm parked up thinking, what, what is this show? And there was a show on uh, SoapNet, called Southern Bells Louisville and it was a reality docu-soap kind of thing and they followed these five women around from Louisville and when I found that I I read about it and it basically it positioned this show just like I was positioning Louisville uh, in my my thinking it was this southern thing but not exactly southern it's not the southern of stereotypes basically Mm -hmm. was the the notion Um, they wanted to cast it as friendly and warm like the positive Southern stereotypes, but uh, art centric and uh, cosmopolitan, which are not words that are generally associated with the South sure. Though I would argue that there are plenty of cosmopolitan and art centric places in the South, but they were positioning it at that place between places as well mm-hmm. so I ended up actually using the audio from that f- that show as uh, data for for the dissertation as well, so that was kind of a triumph to find this uh, thing that was saying we 're southern but we 're not southern. I said fine. <laughs> Do you do it in your language, then?
0: Right. And then, um, well, let, actually, let's take a quick break. Okay. Um, and get a little uh, nod to our underwriters. And uh, we'll be back with, in just a minute with more with Jennifer Kramer. All right. Appropriately enough, the Living Brothers with Kentucky, since we're talking uh, with Professor Jennifer Kramer about, specifically right now, Louisville dialects. Of course, I'm, I always say Louisville, so I don't know what. She may get mad at me every time I say that. No, because, Louisville's good. Okay. Louisville's.
1: That's right. <laughs> well, don't tell Louisvillians that, though. They fight about it. Actually.
0: I know. I've, well, that's the thing. Like, I've met plenty of Louisvillians who, you know, have that argument yeah. over exactly the way they want to say it. That's right. My mother says Louisville. Right. So, and, I, and you know, they they can own it however they want. That's They're right. from there, so I'm that's not going right. to necessarily <laughs> argue with them. That's right. But there's not enough consistency for me to know exactly. Sure. See, you you Louisvillians, you just... No wonder why people don't know what you are if you're like Southern or Midwestern or Northern because you can't even agree with how to say your own city name. That's right. (laughs) Um, So um, getting also further into your research with not only Louisville, which we can talk about some more, but also just kind of doing the entire state then. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it... Did you find... Um a lot of hotbed areas, like okay, here's Eastern Kentucky, which obviously people have a lot of strong connections and feelings with, mm-hmm. versus um you know Western Kentucky, which may have something a little bit different happening, or Northern Kentucky, which is like, all right, is it do people just associate it with Cincinnati or something sure. like that
1: well so. it's it's really interesting, uh both in the the work I've done with Louisvilleian specifically as well as <laughs> since i've been here, I've been able to work with um, my students to get people in the whole state to do these maps that I was talking about before and one of the things that I keep finding is a really a negative uh, feeling about eastern Kentucky from non-eastern Kentucky Kentuckians. Um, I was a little surprised that uh, it was salient enough for some Louisvillians because living in the big city you don't have to think about the hills that often. Uh, Lexington's a little different because it's quite close. Uh, many of the students who come to UK come from Appalachia so I would imagine they'd have a lot of uh, contact with people there. but I was actually a little surprised that the Louisvillians had as much to say as they do. Um, interestingly, when I do these maps, the other thing I have them do is rate these varieties in terms of their perceived pleasantness, perceived correctness, and some other social characteristics. And time and time again, uh, Eastern Kentucky and Appalachian dialects are rated very low as the least correct, least pleasant, least beautiful way of speaking, except by Eastern Kentuckians themselves who uh, take a stand, as it were, and say, no, no, our variety is beautiful, uh, and cast those Northern Kentucky and Louisville dialects as not beautiful. Um, but what I what I have found... Uh, really is a kind of a tripartite thing going on in the state, which wasn't really surprising. What I see is there's an urban discussion. Uh, Louisville and sometimes Lexington gets roped in where they want to talk about, yes, they're educated. That's where the colleges are, okay? Uh, They want to say they're correct and that they are standard-speaking, though standard-speaking is kind of a myth. There aren't really people who actually speak the standard.
0: Right, but if Um, if you have, like, a the large TV news stations sure. in those places. Right, so they would
1: maybe com- be comparing that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so you get the urban, then you get the, the rural, which a lot of the rest of Kentucky gets lumped into, but then they seem to make a separate case for a mountain rural. So I'm seeing the three kinds of Kentucky and how people feel about it. Western Kentucky is really fascinating. I've got students that are frustrated because they're from Western Kentucky. They want to know what's going on in Western Kentucky, and I always have to tell them there aren't many people working on Western Kentucky. In fact, no one, uh, except for the students here who have been doing some work, uh, maybe some down at Western Kentucky University. But um, there's not a lot been said about it. And then even when you ask the Kentuckians, there's like, yeah, there's, there's Western Kentucky over there, but they don't, they don't have much to say. Right. Uh, it ends up getting sort of a medium ranking. Um, but the, the rest of what's happening is, is fascinating. You get this distancing um, for Appalachians saying, no, ours is pleasant and friendly here, um, they're northern urban rude in the cities and sort of the opposite happening from the other way.
0: It seems like uh, western Kentucky's, like, not that they're, I'm just speculating, mm-hmm. but the one place that they could maybe have some more research or something to hang their head on for, like, figuring out a specific dialect is kind of paducah area Mm -hmm. because once again the river comes into effect right and so you have a lot of people migrating through and a lot of different things happening in that i'm
1: hoping to one day get some more uh data collected from out there uh i think that there's a distinction in how uk students uh where they come from Uh, i had a class that i taught here called language in kentucky and the students actually went to their hometowns to collect some of these maps i got 250 maps it was great uh, but, when I plotted where my students were from on a map, uh, only like three or four of them came from any further west than Louisville. So I get a sense that maybe maybe there 's a smaller population of Western Kentucky people at u k sure, sure. uh, Maybe Western Kentucky people tend to go to u of l if they 're going to go to one of the bigger schools in the state but because of because of that, I don't actually have a lot of data from Western Kentucky at all. So I'd really like to go, uh, and we have family in Paducah, so it'd be fairly easy to do. I just haven't had a chance to get out there yet, but
0: one day. <laughs> and so, um, tell me how kind of the dissertation finishes up, comes together. Um, and where that where that took you?
1: <laughs> well, so it got done. That was that was the important point, right? It, it was, Congratulations! Thanks. It, it was finished. I think we're at about uh, four years ago now. So that's done, and that's uh, it. Doesn't end there, though. For for, for most people, uh, it's just the beginning. And so, what I've done is having done more work with Kentuckians. This these maps with Kentuckians. I've been able to to completely. Redo what I had done before and create a a book, a manuscript that's uh, in its final stages to be sent off to the publisher. Hopefully, in the next couple weeks, <laughs> uh, it's it's a revamped view of Louisville, um, and I'm at least tentatively calling it contested southernness because the data that I found originally had this middle of the road um, sense of southernness both in perception and production by Louisvillians. But when you talk to Kentuckians as a whole, where they place Louisville and how they rate it really does bring that to to bear, that you see a little more, um, no, they're not like us. Uh, And this is kind of common. People think about there's Louisville and then there's the rest of the state. And even that's coming out in terms of how they perceive their language. And so I even had some Kentuckians saying, we might as well just give Louisville to Indiana. (laughs) <laughs> and because uh, I was seeing these kinds of things, it was it's really a, a book that presents a whole picture of the the regional identity right. that Louisvillians have, both of themselves but as perceived by others. Because that's one of the things we know about identities is that you can't just sit around knowing who you are. There's somebody out there perceiving you. And so a lot of who you are is in the eye of the beholder, as it were.
0: Although well, I'm sure... Um, Villians wouldn't want to be um, accepted into the Hoosier state. <laughs>
1: I don't think so. I think that, that little Villians wouldn't like that movie either.
0: It'd have to be like just their own island. The little
1: <laughs> island. That's right.
0: <laughs> Make a stand.
1: That's right. We'll be our. That'll be our own little small island there.
0: <laughs> um, so, moving forward into some um, other things you've been doing. Um, you tell me a little bit about the work that you've done um, with um, some linguistics and hip-hop and global hip-hop? Sure.
1: I uh, have a a chapter that I wrote with a colleague at the University of Illinois in a a volume on language and global hip-hop. It was edited by one of my professors there, Marina Chakaroffi, and it really examines how hip-hop is being used as a sense of resistance. Uh, it's always had in its history this sort of um, fight back uh, in its in its base. But what's happened is um, disenfranchised peoples around the world are turning to hip-hop as a way of expressing that, um, that position. And so there were people who were writing about the use of hip-hop, whether it had English in it or not, was uh, of no consequence. Mm-hmm. It was really... Um, these minority groups in other places, so um, Turkish people in Germany, and which is
0: we had um, we had Brenna on last week and talking right. about that a little right. bit, right? Yeah. And
1: her work is, is similar there. We had um, people working on um, uh, K-pop in Korea, um, people talking about uh, work of uh, the uh, the Gypsy people, the Romani uh, in in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Central Europe. Um, and so the the whole collection was to look at how language is used in that form of resistance. And there's a whole uh, lots of people working on hip hop linguistics broadly. This book came about as a uh, it started in a, in a class. Actually, we we had been talking about hip hop in a conference called the Sociolinguistic Symposium, which is a major international conference. Came up with a a a call for proposals for panels on. Sort of um, like micro and macro visions of, of variation and and that's that's where we we decided let's let's submit to that and we put together a group uh, and went to Amsterdam to present these papers and They were really well received and uh, a publisher approached uh, the now editor of the book and and we put together the collection, so it was really nice. My uh, piece did focus on uh, more southern stuff again I actually uh, with a colleague compared the, the lexical choices the words people choose to affiliate uh, we know hip hop in, in the American context there's a lot of affiliation that goes on people want to say I represent this and we wanted to see how southerners represent southernness in their hip hop in terms of the words that they choose and then also see do midwesterners do those kinds of things as
0: well and and the findings, um, I'm going to I'm going to guess that it's um, that the southern representation was a little bit heavier than Midwest because Midwest doesn't necessarily have as many iconic kind of things to work with in terms of language.
1: Right. Well, I think there are two things going on. One is the establishment of the 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 third coast, uh, the dirty south, as it were, in the um, early 2000s. Um, Atlanta as a hub for for American rap and hip hop, um, uh, as it showed up, you know, maybe post nineties East Coast West Coast problems. Mm-hmm. Um, Atlanta really rose up as a hot spot for that. We never really had anything like that happen in the Midwest. I mean, St. Louis a little bit, but um, there was there was not like a big. Hip hop scene that was like this is Midwest hip hop, right? Like a um, Chicago or something right. stepping up. Or uh, something. Now people came from those sure. places, but it wasn't. Sure. It didn't congeal like it did in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing would be like you said the the things they could reference. You know, the southern the southern groups had lots of um, references to cities, people that were markedly southern. We had um, lexical items that are linguistically positioned, like y'all and ain't, as being of Southerness. Uh, The Midwest...
0: Could only do songs about, like, soda.
1: (laughs) Well, they had... um, We we actually, after the initial analysis, we decided, let's do a little more digging, and we did find some group from Minnesota talked about it being cold. (laughs) And I think we might have... If I remember, we might have found somebody who talked about corn. But... Not a lot of corn going on there. You get you know, you get references to the big cities. Um, Kanye West talks about Chicago a lot, mm-hmm. uh, probably as much as Ludacris talks about Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But um, the things that they talk about referencing don't seem to stand out as being quintessentially Midwestern. Whereas the Southerners, there were Southern stuff. There's also rural, so there was a little bit of a conflation there, too, of rural uh, things like um, country and and. Farm life sure, in sure. general uh, would show up, but uh, th- yeah, there was definitely a stronger identification for the southern hip-hop artists than there were for the, the Midwestern ones as being regionally affiliated. Now there was a lot of lo- still local affiliation, so like I said, Kanye in Chicago, he would reference local landmarks and streets just like you know Southerners do. Um, Nelly in St. Louis did the sure. same thing. Um, but uh, that localness mm-hmm. never made its way to a larger regional. Affiliation,
0: right, and the language too. I mean, there's right. just not as much to kind of,
1: yeah, exactly. Boun- bounce off of, exactly.
0: Yeah, well, very good. Let's take another break, okay? And uh, we'll also maybe back that up with some nappy roots.
1: All right, sounds good as
0: well to kind of get our dirty south hip hop moment in as well. That's so,
1: right. and still representing Kentucky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, there you go. Uh, so, stay tuned. All right, nappy roots here on WRFL eighty-eight point one, Radio for Lexington, with all in all. By suggestion <laughs> of Jennifer Kramer, who is our guest, um, who was talking about uh, her contribution to a volume um, in her chapter on um, some um, Dirty South stuff in a um, collection of uh, global hip hop. And then there's, you also have something else cooking with hip hop, right? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, some other, like, volume or something? Or, or? I, I've
1: got another volume, but it has nothing to do with hip-hop. <laughs> I can talk about it. Sure. Uh, uh, doing perceptual dietology, one of the things that, uh, with the maps, uh, there's been a tendency to do a little more manual analyzing of the maps um, historically. So taking every individual map and overlaying them and seeing where there's... Um, consistency in terms of where lines are drawn. Uh, but more recently, uh, I've been working with some other linguists, and we've been trying to figure out how to best use uh, geographic information system tools, GIS stuff, to to present that data, to analyze and, and present representations of the data. And the collection that I've been working on with a colleague at the University of Sheffield uh, in England is on um, a bunch of people who've worked on perceptions in and of the cities. So my work from Louisville shows up there, but we have people from working on Seoul, Korea, and Dublin, Ireland, and uh, cities in England and Germany and other places where we try to figure out um, how those perceptions uh, differ from in other places. And this is where that urban, rural, mountain rural thing came about. And several of the chapters highlight this work we've been doing to get um, GIS stuff really as the, the... best practices for doing this kind of research.
0: So um, they, there are cities around the globe, mm-hmm. right, that are kind of the focal points mm-hmm. of the research. And so then is there, like, kind of similarities kind of drawn between, like, so, like, what the similarities are between Dublin and Louisville in terms of, like, how they're seen in the rural areas of that region? Or well,
1: What we've got is we've got it divided out into three kinds of sections and, and the ones where... There's some clear comparisons. I mean, there's comparisons across the book that does happen, but um, the ones of us that focused on this rural-urban distinction, those are kind of set apart as a separate issue. Um, And then, you know, others are focused more in um, new perceptions, things that are different from what had been said before. Um, uh, Some of them are more focused in production and how those map onto perceptions. Others have or focus, so, like, how do people represent difference in um, talking about difference and how that maps on, how that's perceived. So, not necessarily just the map drawing, but also perceptions in talk about
0: talk. uh, Is there any Chinese cities in in play?
1: Uh, I don't think we had anybody from...
0: Just because it's so, I mean, that's such a morphing... (laughs) Yeah,
1: no we don't actually have anybody and this is this is another collection that came out of this sociolinguistic symposium um this time we were in uh berlin and um the people who were on our panel no china wasn't represented several american cities several british cities and that's kind of a common thing that happens but uh, uh then uh, mostly the rest was europe and then we had the one uh from korea i think
0: is there anything that kind of stood out to you as kind of interesting in terms of an American city or even another city just around the globe that kind of um, ca- caught you by surprise or
1: uh, well a colleague of mine at the University of washington's doing some really neat stuff with these maps with the state of Washington. So like I've been giving the Kentucky state map alone uh, and asking people to say, where do people have certain ways of talking in Kentucky? She did the same thing with Washington. And what was great is that the uh, Cascade Mountain Range runs right down the middle and it really serves as this border for Washingtonians where they're drawing something on one side and something else on the other. And that was really neat to see, especially as it aligns with my work with the river serving as that uh, main border. And so Really seeing how these geographic features, even though they don't prohibit communication like they maybe once did. Maybe it was really difficult to talk to people on the other side of the mountains at some sure, point. Sure. Um, they don't prohibit that anymore, yet though still it's so solidified in our you know, history, our settlement patterns, sure. our migratory patterns, that, um, that that maintains a perception of difference there. Um, people want to mark Indiana and Ohio as different from what's happening in Kentucky. But Bo- on either side of the river, they want to mark that because that river seems somehow important. Same thing happening in Washington, which I thought was pretty fascinating.
0: Sure, I mean, um, I mean the Ohio River being such a kind of longstanding, standing right. Kind of um, major travel pathway for right. the and for the I
1: country. mean it, it really doesn't prohibit anybody from sure spending time with anybody else. It just <laughs> still seems to be. We
0: had to important. build bridges. That's
1: right. We did have to build them, and and we did, <laughs> and we're still building them.
0: And now we have to repair them.
1: Yes. We're repairing and building new.
0: <laughs> um, so uh, tell me a little bit about um, a couple of the classes that maybe you have taught here at UK mm-hmm. or maybe the things that you are teaching in the spring semester. I'll talk
1: a little bit about the, the ones in the spring and talk about other things if you want. But uh, in the spring, I'm teaching uh, an undergrad class on American English. It's... Um, it's no prereq, uh, broad class. It's pretty big. It's pretty full at this point, so I hope I don't get too too many people too excited, but <laughs> they can keep their eye on people to drop. Um, it's it's great because we, we start from a, a historical standpoint. Where do dialects uh, in America come from? I mean, there's an obvious beginning answer, in England. But <laughs> then then we talk about, well, how does that impact... Um, how we have these dialect differences today. So mm-hmm. people from different parts of England came to different parts of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and how that impacted what we have today. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun because students, I mean, obviously we have a lot of Kentucky students, but I often have students from other states, and they can bring in their own experiences. They can uh, do uh, impersonations of <laughs> the people from where they're, when they're from, they're from uh, their hometowns. Um, those kinds of things are... Need more
0: Minnesotans. Yeah, nah,
1: yeah we need more Minnesotans. I always get... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I probably embarrass my students, but I, I get the student from Pittsburgh or from uh, uh, somewhere, you know, Alabama or something like that, and I'm always like, hey, can you do this? And they kind of look down at their feet from it. I'm <laughs> like, I'm not trying to pick on you. Uh, I know that people are so used to people picking on their language, but this is, this is important to me because as a sociolinguist, I always tell my students, it's like, hey, don't change the way you talk because if you do, I'm out of a job. (laughs) Um, But uh, I try to encourage them to to embrace the way that they speak as part of who they are, part of their identities. Now, I I also tell them that I would be doing them a disservice if I told them they could take their dialect anywhere and still get by. Society has its own view of what is the right way to talk. And... um, I've had students who take you know, any number of classes with me tell me after taking those classes that hearing just hearing someone say that there's nothing wrong with you because of the way you talk uh, really made a difference uh, in in how they perceived themselves. Which that's I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Is right. reaching the students. And so, in um, American English, is a class where we're able to do a lot of that talking about yes, they do this. Surfer guys say this, and you know, people from New York City say this. But so what? Um, it's about who they are. That That's part of why they do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything about um, their their socioeconomic class or their education level or anything like that.
0: Do you think it's, like in just the broadest spectrum, do you think that it's becoming um, uh, less of a hang-up for, for people, that people sound like they're from eastern Kentucky and they're, or they sound like they're from... Um, Mobile, Alabama. You know, does, does it seem like we're moving? We're moving somehow in a in a more kind of accepting direction, or do you do you think that's not true?
1: That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would be lovely if it was. I would I, I would say that um, no, that I don't think that's happening. Um, in fact, uh, there's an, another thing I've, I've worked a little bit on is myths about Appalachia and Appalachian language. Um, there's this notion that. Appalachians speak like Shakespeare or something. That's a that's a myth. Um, that linguists haven't spent a lot of time worrying about to, but basically to say no one still speaks the same way someone spoke that long ago. Languages change, that's a given. Um, and so I asked people about this. It's like so some people say Appalachians sound like Shakespeare. And instead of getting a oh yeah, I've heard that before, I got a lot more uh, how could that be? They're so and then fill in the blank with any ugly stereotype you could think of of uh, poverty of no education and really pretty uh, colorful expressions uh, and because of that, and I mean that's not even that 's not the extent of it i've had students tell me they 've had professors tell them they sound poor they 've had uh, people tell them um, they would like to have them you know come to their group or whatever it is but they couldn't get past their accent. Uh, and so you know, even in today, we might think people are a little more open-minded. And I, I get a sense that, especially from my students, that that's not the case. Sure. Um, and and so I always hope that in these classes I can say, you know, it's, it's important for many of them to maintain their dialect features because that's what it means to be from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the Kentucky experience, I think, for a lot of them, Especially once you come from very small towns in Kentucky, when they come to lexington for for college uh, they get they get that pointed out when they get here. Uh, oh, listen to that, say that again you know all these these things people do, but then when they go back home, they had the experience of not belonging there either. Their families will say, "Oh, listen to you, you've got your you know your college voice and and whatever whatever other things it is um you're too good for us mm-hmm. some some kind of thing, so the students often feel this. This torn nature of i don't belong anywhere, sure. uh, and that's one of the things I always hope to to encourage in them is that you can maintain these features this is there's nothing wrong with speaking this way, um, but you have to be aware that even if even if I think that i'm not i'm not the whole world, and the whole world will tell you how they feel about appalachian speech features and you have to it's a it's a balancing act to to be able to use those features in in the right locations and many southerners many appalachians and probably speakers of a lot of stigmatized varieties do that balancing act regularly sure
0: sure all right well let's take one really quick break and okay. we'll come back and finish up with our time here with jennifer kramer don't go anywhere dear god All right. There's some Hazel Dickens with Black Lung as uh, Jennifer and I were kind of wrapping up some more of our talk about uh, Appalachian dialects or kind of things tied to the region in that way. But uh, you also wanted to talk about some basic, uh, like the Linguistics 101 course uh, in the program. Sure. And why uh, that's kind of a... The course that I think a lot of students can benefit from.
1: Yeah, well, so I mentioned the American English class because, you know, I'm teaching it in the spring, and it it actually draws students from across campus because there's no prereq. Um, It's it's just a fun class. People are interested in dialects. and so I've had students from nursing, from business, from lots of different places. But some of the other classes we offer are similar, and they're, they're very interesting. People really, I think, get a lot out of taking these classes. We offer, a, it's called Linguistics 211, and it's really, it's our introduction to, to the study of language for non-majors. Uh, we get a lot of students outside of the College of Arts and Sciences take it because it fulfills requirements for them. And it's a really basic introduction to what linguists do. Um, from a From a perspective that 's very easily understood by by people that are not necessarily going to be linguists, and I think it 's important because it it communicates these issues that that are related to how we communicate to people so yes, we talk about the theoretical notions of language, but we also get into the social aspects. Uh, things that are useful for you to interact with people. Things that are useful for careers outside of being a linguist. Sure. I often try to make connections to the business world sure. or to um, advertising mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, and that's a, so. That's a really good class for for people to take. I teach a lot of classes that are similar in that they they're open to a wide range of people. We teach a class, and uh, that's a actually a UK core course for the U.S. citizenship unit, and it's called I think it's called Language in U.S. Society, and we it's different from the American English class because it deals more with these social aspects of how language is used in a way that people people use language as a way of discriminating against people, and we were talking about stereotypes of Appalachians before we left, and we bring that into the classroom where we talk about people hear you speak one way, and they they don't want to give you the job, despite the fact that you're resume says you're highly qualified for the job they hear you speak and they think wow this person isn't very smart this person can't do this job Um, and so we we talk about the ramifications of that in in the real world and so those are some really um, I think interesting offerings for for students that um, would give them a perspective especially our students who come from places where the variety they speak is not so stigmatized that is if they consider themselves midwestern instead of southern sure. um, uh, people often from northern kentucky and, and louisville uh, often i won't say only but often um, have varieties that more closely approximate midwestern varieties and therefore get associated with standardness but uh it's it's really eye-opening i think for some of those students because they don't recognize that these prejudices exist uh, towards ways of speaking
0: so, getting back to my um, pie in the sky thing earlier uh-huh. about whether I thought there was like on the grand spectrum, um, right. you know, some kind of shift change at all, and you said no, <laughs>
1: in no uncertain terms, <laughs> I said no,
0: <laughs> and that's and that's good and that's good to know. Um, but do you see that kind of standardized English. Or language that kind of is thought of as, in the very general sense, like you have to mm-hmm. be a news anchor to have that, right? right. Um, do you see that having kind of any kind of um, change in its arc over the next, mm, as, a, as a linguist, like over the next twenty years, twenty-five years, or like what that pro- that projection is? I
1: don't know. the The interesting thing, and I, I don't know what uh, people are that are trained to be news anchors are taught. I don't know what what people tell them to sound Um, like a robot (laughs) but i know i've noticed anyway here and i've had some students do some research that you're you're starting to find local linguistic features even in in the news anchors of course the local ones now the national news anchors the international ones probably still have that standard news anchor thing so i'm i'm hopeful that there will be a more um Appreciation for local features, or at least some sort of local standard. I mean, everyone has a local standard. So Southern speakers, even if they speak Southern all the time, have a range within which they can operate. They aren't always speaking all the Southern stuff all the time. Sure. Wasn't
0: well, interesting though. Like if you think about like something like NPR, mm-hmm. that there are often people who do segments that have distinctly like British mm-hmm. accents, and people are and completely accepting of that. Ah, well,
1: that's where the stereotypes are interesting. <laughs> People generally have a Americans generally have a positive take on uh, British. Uh, they're very smart people. They're they might be evil, but they're smart, <laughs> and that, that's the general perspective people have of British people. So they love the accent. But I
0: think even outside of um, British, there's a couple of others that mm-hmm. you see kind of worked into kind of that NPR kind of thing. That some right. other global kind right. of dialects that are, I think, easily kind of digested and accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet here internally, we kind of have more of a difficulty getting over certain humps. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Well, we'll leave it at that. Okay. (laughs) Which is completely open-ended. Sure. (laughs) So people can chew on that for a while. That's right. (laughs) And speaking of chewing on things, Dan Wu is up next, the culinary evangelist, and he always um, is chewing on things. (laughs) Literally, metaphorically, all over the place. (laughs) So uh, that is up next. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer for being here. Thanks, Brian. And uh, being the guinea pig for the solo (laughs) uh, person here this week. Now you know how it goes. Yeah, but all great information. Really interesting stuff, Um, once again. So, thanks, and you are listening to WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. (laughs) FS Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts
1: and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Trupi contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.